All right, we are back in 1 Corinthians tonight. And uh, so if you want to open up to the beginning chapter or two, um, unfortunately, we're not going to make a ton of progress tonight because we're dealing with some big stuff here in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 and 3, really. Um, And that's about as far as we're going to get. I may mention how these themes touch on other portions of the letter, but... um, there's so much foundational truth here that we have to stop and go slow. So let's pray, and then we will dig in. Father, thank you for your word, and I pray that you'd give us ears to hear tonight, Lord, that you'd give us soft hearts, uh, that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word and uh, consumers, but, Lord, that your word would go into our hearts and would change our lives and would make us more like you. We pray for your Holy Spirit to be here over the uh, teaching and preaching of the word. Uh, Lord, that you administer uh, the truth to your people as you've done so faithfully throughout the generations, Lord. When the word goes forth, Lord, you take it and you use it uh, for those who have ears to hear. So, Lord, we pray again for ears to hear tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so just to review... um, this is in one of the earlier letters of, of Paul. He's writing to the Corinthians, probably from Ephesus. And he's hearing reports about how the church, which is now about five years old, is getting on. And uh, it was a flourishing community of God that responded well to the word when it was originally preached. When Paul stayed there for about a year and a half, he laid down some solid doctrine, taught them the ways of the kingdom, explained to them that the Messiah was Jesus, got run out of the synagogue, and all the good stuff that Paul, uh, that Paul was, was very good at. Um, and so he gets reports back, and he's, he's kept tabs on how the church in Corinth is doing, and um, come to find out that there actually, there's a lot of like, activity happening, that there's still a hustling and bustling church, but they've begun to kind of fracture for certain reasons, and, um, and he, he needs to address that. And there's a lot of implications to the fracture, and there are a lot of reasons uh, beneath that, that, that that's going on. And so he opens the letter by kind of stating his, his primary theme here in verse 10, chapter 1. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 9, he has just said that God is faithful And you were called into the fellowship of his son. You were called into a fellowship. You were called into a unified, cohesive body of Christ. Jointly participating in the life of Jesus. And so he says, so I appeal to you by that name. That all of you agree. And that there be no divisions among you. And that is the word in Greek, it's schism. It's the word where we get our word schism. It's a fracture, right? It's not, uh, these are just rifts, uh, you know, gulfs between uh, subgroups of people within the church. That, but that you be united in the same mind, okay? You be united in the same mind and the same judgment, And that's going to be an important word. You may want to circle the word mind. It's going to be an important word for us. Mind in Greek is the the way you process reality. It's it's, 
Um, it's your analytical organizing outlook on life, how you make sense of the world. So no divisions, no schisms, but that you be of the same mind, of one mind, that you, that you make the same thing out of this life that's been laid before you to live. And he says, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. Okay, quarreling. Your translation may say discord or even strife. All right, and I like the, I like the translation of strife because it gives us a little bit of insight into what this word is in Greek. And it's eris. Anyone who's ever studied Greek mythology knows that this is a notorious goddess in Greek mythology, eris. Um, maybe you haven't heard of her, but, but you've heard of the Trojan War, perhaps. According to Greek mythology, Eris was the cause of the Trojan War, right? Little, little goddess, big, uh, big war, okay? Um, let me tell you a little bit something about Eris. It's E-R-I-S, if you're taking notes. Um, this is straight from a very reputable source called Wikipedia, uh, .org, I believe, is the .net, just Wikipedia. Yeah. The most famous tale of Eris recounts her initiating the Trojan War by causing the judgment of Paris. Uh, Paris, the, the guy, Paris. The goddesses Hera, Athena, and Aphrodite, okay, three, you know, big-name goddesses, Hera, Athena, and Aphrodite had been invited along with the rest of Olympus to the forced wedding of Peleus and Thetis, who would become the parents of Achilles. Uh, but Eris had been snubbed because of her troublemaking inclinations. Okay, so we're off to a bad start already, right? Someone who didn't get invited. Who's ever not gotten invited, right? It just feels, it feels bad. It felt bad in ancient Greeks, too, I guess. She, therefore, tossed into the party. She just kind of, bloop, or maybe she rolled it across. I don't know what happened. Uh, the apple of discord, which is a golden apple inscribed for the most beautiful one or for the fairest. Right? She knows what she's doing. One apple. Roll it into the middle of all these wealthy powerful, you know, these would be like the A-list celebrities for the fairest, for the most beautiful. And someone picks it up and says, well, whose is this? We should probably find out. Who's the fairest? Who's the most beautiful? And strife breaks out, right? Eris's plan begins to come to fruition. Uh, it provokes the goddesses to begin quarreling about the appropriate recipient. The hapless Paris, prince of Troy, was appointed, he was there at the wedding too, um, he was appointed to select the fairest by Zeus. He says, hey, Paris, you get in there and you tell them, you know, you judge, right? We're going we're gonna to have this fairest contest, right? This beauty pageant. Paris, you're the judge. Um, the goddesses then attempted to bribe him, okay? Hera offered political power, 
Athena promised infinite wisdom. And Aphrodite tempted him with the most beautiful woman in the world, Helen. Uh, While Greek culture placed a greater emphasis on prowess and power, Paris chose to award the apple to Aphrodite, thereby dooming his city, which was destroyed in the war that ensued. (laughs) Paris doesn't go for the power or the wisdom. He goes for the girl, right? Typical mortal, right? Um, these, These goddesses didn't understand mortal men very well, I guess. And they were uh, offering power. But did you hear that? In order to win the designation of the most beautiful, they were offering power, political power. Uh, Athena promised wisdom, infinite wisdom. And here we find Paul saying there is strife among you. And he begins to call out the causes of strife, which which is a struggle for power and a struggle to prove wisdom, all right? Power and wisdom become the counterpoint to the word of the cross, the crucified Jesus here in 1 Corinthians. There is strife among you, and so he says something must be amiss. Where there is strife, it's not the life of the kingdom. It is the life of the pagans. It's the life of the city of man. And so he describes what the, what the strife, how it's manifesting itself in the Corinthian context. And basically it was coming down to this. People were attracted to certain kinds of personalities. And were aligning themselves with that. One said, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. Now Apollos was a gifted orator and a gifted teacher. And he came to Corinth. He wanted to go to Corinth. And after Priscilla and Aquila had taught him accurately concerning the way, it says he, he left and he went to Achaia and he, and he traveled to Corinth and he preached the word of God. And he powerfully demonstrated from the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus, it says in Acts. Apollos was an amazing guy. So some people in the church of Corinth gravitated toward Apollos, probably gravitated toward his rhetorical flourish. Or I follow Cephas, that's Peter. You know, maybe you're more of a traditionalist. You like the, you know, I favor the Jewish apostle. I'm, I'm a Jewish roots person. So I'm going to listen to Peter. I'm a, I am a, I am, I'm a Peter guy. Or I follow Christ. You know these people. You know, like, what kind of church do you go to? Well, I go to a Jesus church. And I don't know what kind of church you go to, but it must not be a Jesus church. I go to the Jesus church, you know? We do it the way Jesus does it. It's like, okay, all right. And anyone who doesn't do it that way, we're not going to welcome them here. If you want to do it the Jesus way, you can come to church here. If not, you can go down the road to whatever church you want. He says, this is ridiculous. All right. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? And apparently baptism... Was, was kind of tied up in this, which is interesting, because this is one of the things that still divides and still is a marker of denominations in the body of Christ, how you do baptism, how it's administered. And he says, man, I, I'm glad I didn't get all involved in the baptism stuff, uh, because you guys have made that, apparently they were, they were elevating like, 
Well, I was baptized by Apollos. I don't know about you. Who baptized you? (laughs) I was baptized by Paul. Uh, I don't know. know. And so Paul was like, man, I'm glad I didn't baptize a lot of you guys. I, I dodged a bullet on that one. But then he does mention that, you know, basically the, the, the head people in the community, he's like, except for like Crispus and Gaius, you know, the people that are leading your community right now. So anyway, he says, um, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. All right, so this was wrapped up with the kind of the personality schisms where it was like, and I followed Paulus and he baptized me and I'm, I'm his guy. He says, you know, Christ didn't send me to baptize. He sent me to preach the gospel. And then we get to the, 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 the meat of what he wants to say. Um, Paul says that you need to agree and be of the same mind. And he's not urging agreement. Like each of these parties isn't like a specific set of doctrines. And he's not saying, you know, one of these sets of doctrines is better than the other, and you've got to pick the right one and all agree on the same doctrine. Because he's even saying, like, obviously, I mean, you've read the letter, and he goes on to say that, you know, it, it, the foundation is Jesus. Right? But he's not saying the Jesus church, you know. I follow Christ. It's not like the Jesus schism, you know. He uses the Christ party as a negative example. But what he's saying is this. Any faction in the church that's formed for the sake of a power play or a show of superiority in some way. Any faction that's formed to appear superior in knowledge, wisdom, whatever, that runs directly in opposition to the calling, the central calling of the body of Christ. If you call yourself a part of the body of Christ and you are forming factions based on power, influence, superior knowledge, wisdom, you're going about it all wrong. So he's not saying that any particular belief is wrong and you all need to believe the same things. He's saying that Nobody in the whole body should be going about it this way, right? Sure, we want to talk about baptism, sure. We want to talk about this. But if we're doing that to appear superior or to get our own way, right, then, then we've, we've lost our calling as a community. And we've lost our calling as a community because we've lost sight of the central motive of Jesus himself. And he is the one that we owe everything to anyway. That becomes his line of argument. So he singles out wisdom and power as values had by the world. Remember Hera, Athena? They offered power. They offered wisdom. These are things that appeal to the flesh, that appeal to humankind. We want power. We want wisdom. We also want the girl. He gets to that later, chapter 6, 7. (laughs) But he says, these are, these are all the things that we've been saved from. And these are all the things that, that, that God in Christ, in the crucified Christ, 
has brought to nothing. Um, power, you know, we think of power sometimes, and, and there is this sense in Scripture as like just raw force. You know, power is just raw force. And that is, that is an element of it. But here, Paul is really talking about, because he talks about the power of the cross, right? And it's not raw force. The power of the cross is, is the power of the word of the cross, is effectiveness, okay? So power really becomes the opposite of pretend, of appearance, right? You have appearance on one hand, and you have power on the other hand. He says in 2 Timothy, he kind of puts these two things uh, opposite each other again. He says, he's denouncing some false teachers. He says, they have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. That means that they, they just look the part, but they don't actually, they're not actually like God. They're not actually loving people. All right, so that's the main problem. There's discord, there's strife. Factions have formed along the lines of power plays, displays of wisdom and knowledge and superiority, intellectual superiority. And these, these motives have sort of aligned themselves and attached themselves to personalities in the church. People are, are dividing because of it. And then he begins to unfold the ultimate answer. And then for the rest of the letter, after he unfolds this ultimate answer, he's going to apply that answer to a bunch of different specific situations that have, that have arisen within the church. But here in verse 18, he says, I thank, thank God I didn't baptize many of you. I shudder to think what you would have done if I baptized a lot of you. You know, that's just weird. I would have unwilling, you know, unwittingly started a cult, I think. If I baptize more of you, he says, but that's not what, what I came to do. And then he begins his, his main argument, the ultimate solution for the word of the cross. Is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the effective working of God. It is the way God accomplished his purposes once and for all, right? That's what power means, accomplishing the purpose, right? Following through. Power is the real deal, you know? Everything else is hype. Um, you know this in sports, right? There's a, you know, every time there's a big hyped athlete, are they just putting on the show? Or are they the real deal, you know, and... Over the course of their career, it becomes clear whether who's the real deal and who's just hype, who's a pretender. And he says the real deal in this whole thing is the cross. Everything else is show. Everything else is fluff. It's hype. The cross is where we know God. It's how we understand who he is. The word of the cross, the word, the logos of the cross so where we get our word logic. Logos is another one of those really dense, complex Greek words that's used a lot. Here's a great definition. 
logos is a communication, a communication whereby the mind finds expression. A communication, usually a message, a word, a proclamation, whereby the mind finds expression. And Paul says that the powerful, the power of God finds its expression in the word of the cross. To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, and he goes to Isaiah, he pulls out Isaiah 29, 14. So let's go back there. Isaiah 29, 14. He says, it's just like it says in Isaiah. And I'll read this whole section that his, his little snippet comes from, because he would have had in mind the whole flow of thought in Isaiah. This is one of the remarkable things about Paul. Remember Paul the zealot? Paul the Torah fanatic? Paul, the one who knew the Old Testament better than you or I will ever know the Old Testament. When he pulls out something from Isaiah, he's got the whole scroll in mind. Start in verse 13. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth, they honor me with their lips while their heart is far from me. Do you hear the difference? Power versus hype. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people. With wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. God's talking about the way he's going to act in a way that punishes the falsehood and the hypocrisy of his people, while also displaying once and for all who he is. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us, who knows us? Right? The the real motives are hidden. The real motives are in the darkness. I want power. I want superiority. I'm going to make a display of worshiping God so that I can gain power, so that I can gain superiority. Listen to this. You turn things upside down. A lot of times you get to this section and people talk about the cross is upside down. The cross is the upside down way God works. No, no, no. Striving for power and wisdom is the upside-down way that mankind works. Did you hear what Isaiah was saying? You who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us, who knows us, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? The thing that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed of him say who formed it, he has no understanding. This is the essence of the folly of mankind. We know how to live life apart from God better than with God. And he says, you've turned this whole thing completely on its head. So now when I come and show who I really am, you call it foolishness. 
And when I display my divine wisdom, glorious wisdom, you say that it's foolishness. And when I make my power known, you say that it's weakness. To you, it looks like weakness because your mind is completely upside down. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So God says, I'm going to come and act, and you've turned it upside down, I'm going to turn it back on its head. And we're going to see who's the fool and who's wise. Since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach. The foolishness, guys. It was the foolishness. Remember when I was with you for 18 months? It was the foolishness. And you went, whoa, this is something different. This is, this is real power. Through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And he was writing to those who had believed. And he says, but, but you guys got to remember. You know, he's, he, this is one big how it started, how it's going. How it started was, I came and told you this stuff, and you believed. And how it's going is, you guys are forming factions based on personality and striving for power and wisdom and superiority. What happened? Jews demand science. Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. The essence of who God is is in the message of the cross. This is the fullest expression that God could ever give mankind of what he's like and who he is. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God, there's air quotes here, you know, the weakness of God is stronger than men. He says, consider your calling, brothers. And this is, I mean, calling is a very much a Jewish Israelite word. They were the called people of God the chosen people of God, the elect. They, and we know the story. They got their calling wrong. They did not understand their calling as God's people. They did not understand the part where they were meant to be a conduit of blessing into the earth. Right? And so Paul says, consider your calling, brothers, Corinthians. We are the called people of God. He said in the, in the, very second, the second verse of the whole book, that they were called to be the saints, to be the holy people, the holy nation that God has always wanted. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise. Consider your calling. Remember how it went. You guys were not much of anything. The gospel came to you, the word of the cross came to you, and you believed, and something was ignited in your city, in your community of people, and it changed your lives. He says, but don't make the same mistake that the Israelites did. What happened? God chose you. Why did he choose you? Because you were just foolish enough for him to use. Because you were hopeless enough for him to be able to, to move 
in a way that showed the world that unless God had done something in these people, they were fools. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. God chose what is foolish in the world. Why did he choose you? Because he, in the same way that he he came to his people and destroyed the wisdom of the wise, he is using you, fools, to destroy the wisdom of the world. So that when the world looks at you, in the worldly sense, they see a bunch of fools. But in God's eyes, he is using you to shame the world. To reveal the folly of the motives of their existence. To reveal how actually powerless striving for power really is. How actually foolish puffing up in knowledge really is. How does he show them that? (laughs) He gets a hold of you losers and changes your lives and sends you into their lives. Preaching what? Foolishness of the cross. Declaring what? He loves me. I don't know why, but he loves me and he died for me. And my life is different now. My life is totally different. And I don't live for the things that you live for. I live for him. Because he was foolish enough to die for me. I'm foolish enough to live for him. And we're all foolish enough to show you how foolish you are. You see what's going on here? God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, a bunch of nothings. That's what he calls them. He has a special purpose. And this is the purpose that Israel never really caught hold of. A special purpose. Not to be the envy of the world, but to be the shame of the world. To be the place where the world looks and goes, oh, I've got it all wrong. This independence thing, this independence from God, this worldly arrogance that I walk around in, that's all wrong. How stupid am I? That's what life is is about. That's what the people of Israel were supposed to be in the world. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's from one of our foundational verses, one of our foundational memory verses, Jeremiah 9. Jeremiah 9.23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love. Knows me and knows what I am like. Knows what I'm like. 
Steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. We delight in power. We delight in knowledge, wisdom. We delight in sensual pleasure. And we strive to gain more and more of those things, and we boast in them. And God says, that's not what I delight in. What I delight in is steadfast love, faithful love. Love that is so faithful and so loyal, it would die to prove it. He says, guys, just just think back. Think back with me like five years. When we started this thing, did I come with flaming pyrotechnics and smoke and incredible? No. Remember those little services? Remember we got kicked out of the synagogue and we had to go next door and then they beat that guy up too? I didn't come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided, probably decided on the way down from Mars Hill at Athens, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Basically, he's saying this. These factions, I don't know where you're getting that. Because that's not how we started. I didn't say, all right, God wants you to make something of your life. Go out there in the world and make your life count for something. You know, however you gain notoriety. Get all the degrees that you can so that you can show people how smart you are. Write a bunch of books. He said... I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. We didn't have much, guys. And people wanted to kill us. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power. What I did do is I I, I just, in honesty and sincerity, I declared the truth to you. And because it wasn't hype, because it was reality, it was effective. It did something. It changed your life. What was it that changed your life? He's asking them. What was it that changed your life? A big display of wisdom or this message of the cross? The word of the cross. The word of the cross is what changed your life. So stop living like it didn't. The word of the cross is what changed your life. Church, the word of, what, of the cross is what started this whole thing. So stop living like it wasn't. So that your faith might rest not in the wisdom of men, not in the hype, not in the show, not in the appearance, not in the lips and the mouth, while the heart is far from me, but in the power of God in the real deal. And then he spends the rest of chapter 2 saying, but let me tell you this. If this seems upside down, it's because we're upside down. Actually, what I'm calling foolishness, that's actually the wisdom 
through which the world was created. That's the wisdom that Proverbs 8 says was there in the beginning. That God delighted in at the beginning. He says, among the mature, once you begin to understand this, once you turn right side up and see things the right way, you start to see how the world works. We do impart a wisdom. It's not the wisdom of this age. That's the upside down wisdom. Or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Like John says, I mean, the, the, the world is passing away. And the lust thereof. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. The golden apple. The, the beauty contest. We impart a secret and hidden Wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Right? This is so beautiful. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, because that was the very thing that became their undoing. And that's the very thing that is the actual power of God unleashed into the world. They let it out. The rulers of this age, because they were so upside down, did not understand that they were sending themselves hurtling off the cliff when they crucified the Lord of glory. And he says, but these things, you can't just, you can't just learn these things in, in the natural. This is, this is part of the renewing of our minds that Romans 12 talks about, that once you receive the Spirit... Then you get turned right side up and your mind begins to shift. Okay? Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. Namely, the cross. Or that our lives are to be lived, poured out for the good of other people. That's love. Our lives to be lived in love. Our lives are to be poured out and sacrificed for others. Well, that's folly. To the natural man, right? Because Darwin would say, and he describes the natural man in a very perfect way, that the, the chief drive of the human being is to survive, right? And the chief drive of a human being in God's eyes is to love, right? When we are renewed, the chief drive of our being is to love at whatever cost to ourselves. If it threatens our survival, we still love. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We've been given this way of thinking. You can go read Philippians 2. It's a beautiful meditation on the mind of Christ. This is the, I have power, I have wisdom, but I divest myself of those to love. But, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people. He wants to relate with them on these terms. But he says, nope. Not while you're doing this schism thing. He says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you're not, re not yet ready for it. 
And even now, you're not yet ready. Someone's, someone's still a babe back there. And even now, you're not re- yet ready. He says, you still, you guys, you still don't quite understand this. And the way I know it is that you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? You're still stuck upside down. You're still stuck on the upside down. So that's it. That's the ultimate solution. The big problem, here's the big solution. The rest of the letter, he's going to go through and apply this to different situations. He's going to help them think with the mind of Christ about all the different situations that they've encountered. Um, Just to to quickly kind of run through this, in chapter 4, he talks about the apostolic office, right? The authority carried by an apostle. He goes, well, let me tell you about this high and lofty office that we have. He goes, basically... We've become the scum of the earth. That's what he describes the apostolic office as. He's like, believe me, high office in the kingdom of God is is not to be desired (laughs) in an earthly way. So that's what he says about his own office. We'll get into some of that a little bit more. Chapter 6, he talks about lawsuits. He goes, hold on, what's the essence of a lawsuit? Somebody wants to be right. Somebody wants to be found in the right over and against another person. He goes, okay, lawsuits among brothers are the opposite of what we're talking about here. He says a brother goes to law against a brother and in front of unbelievers. Well, this undercuts everything that we're trying to say, doesn't it? If we are supposed to be shaming the the wise, by the foolishness of the way that we live, and we're choking each other out for, you know, in, in petty court. What's going on? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Because then the cross enters the picture, doesn't it? And finally, that foolish way of the kingdom begins to emerge from that situation. Oh, I never thought about that, Paul. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. All right, so he says, this, this is not the way of the cross. He talks about his own personal rights and freedoms in chapter 9. We love to talk about rights. We live in a country that's governed by a bill of rights. And he says, I'm free. I'm an apostle. I saw the Lord Jesus. I have a right to eat and drink what I want to eat and drink. I have a right to take along a wife, although he was single. I have a right to a wife, as the other apostles. I can receive payment for my preaching. That's fine. I mean, actually, that's part of God's desires for the people that minister the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So that's all great. You don't muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. But then he says, 
Nevertheless, I have not made use of this right. I endure, we endure, he says, anything. We endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. We want everything about our lives to demonstrate the gospel of Christ. And so if we can lay down one of our rights and people take note of that, well, then we've preached the gospel in that way. It's like, and if my goal is to preach the gospel, why would I go and defend my rights at all costs? Why wouldn't I just lay down my rights so that more people can see and understand the gospel in a tangible way? I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have someone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Let him who boasts, boast in what? They know and understand me. <clears throat> for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I may win more of them. All right, so that's his personal rights and freedoms. <clears throat> the Lord's Supper itself, he goes, hold on a second. Here's the meal in which we commemorate that Jesus gave up his own body, poured out his own blood for us. And you guys are jockeying over who gets to eat first. This doesn't make any sense, right? Literally. The point of the meal, guys, the point of the meal is to remember that we are called to live self-sacrificial lives. Well, I want to eat the meal first. That doesn't make any sense. He goes, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Right? Fail. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. I don't know. I mean, you may call it the Lord's Supper, but it's not the actual Lord's Supper. And doing it this way, you're depriving yourselves of the power of the Lord's Supper. Chapters 12 through 14 talks about spiritual gifts. They were, I mean, the spirit had been let loose in Corinth and people were gifted and people were exercising their giftings, but it had become more about what this gift says about me and the status that this gift brought me than the whole reason for the gift. It's absurd, right? If you have a closet full of gifts that you've bought for people for Christmas and you're so proud of your closet and how full it is, it's weird, right? Look at all this. Packed. Can't even close the door. I'm just gifted. I'm so blessed. I'm a gifted person. What are you doing? Are you going to give them to the people that they're for? Like, it doesn't make any sense. And this is what Paul says. He says, yeah, there's lots of gifts. But I'm telling you, it, ha it all has to be for the building up of the body. That's the whole point. If you're puffing yourself up by these gifts, then you've missed the whole point of the gift. A gift is to give. 
Right? And that's where he, we get the chapter on love, the great chapter on love. It's right in his discussion of spiritual gifts. He said, all this stuff is going on. But guys, it all comes down to this. We're called to love. And so love doesn't insist on its own way. It's patience, not rude. It doesn't make a big deal of itself. Love is patient. Love is kind. And he plops that right down there in the, in the discussion of spiritual gifts. He says, you're upside down still. You're gifted. Yes, we'll give you that. Man, you got prophets. You got, you speaking in tongues. Great. But is there, pow- is there any power in it? Is there any effectiveness? Because the effectiveness of a gift isn't in the manifestation of the gift. The effectiveness of the gift, the power of a gift, is in its building up of the body. That's when we know that the gifts are powerful. Not in the display, but in the edification for the building up of the body. So there you go. That's the, that's the, the big problem and the big solution. And so we'll get into a couple more sections as we finish out um, 1 Corinthians. We'll head into 2 Corinthians. We'll get into a couple sections, but that's the backdrop. That's, that's the whole thing. I mean, if you, if you get that, if you get what Paul's trying to say about the upside-down upside way of the world, I don't like calling the way of God upside-down. I like how Isaiah says, you've turned everything upside-down. By going astray from God and by striving for power, that's the weird thing. That's the foolish way. Um, he's trying to help them see things right-side up. Amen? So I think that there's things probably that God wants to, to, to touch in your own life. And the word of God is, is sharp, right? It pierces, Hebrews says that it pierces through the hype. It cuts away the show. It cuts away the striving. It cuts away the, the, superior, the air of superiority and the air of wisdom and the puffing up of knowledge. And it gets down to the heart. Right? And I hope, I mean, really, the, my, my one application is, does the word of the cross, does the word of the cross pierce through your conception of wisdom, your conception of power, what it means to be, to have status, your, your, your view of yourself, your gifting, whatever it is. Does the word of the cross pierce through that? And do you live according to appearance? Or do you actually live in the power of the cross? In the real, genuine love that comes into our lives and flows out of our lives when we've truly understood that I was nothing, (laughs) right? And I've been made into something by the grace of God. A grace that cost him the, the body and blood of his only son. Uh, so does the word of the cross pierce through all these outward shows? And does it, uh, does it lead you into true, powerful, effective life? Life that, that truly does build up other people. A life that truly does sh- shame the wisdom of the world. We don't want to compete with the wisdom of the world. We're not called to Beat them at their own game. Right? We're not called to 
play the power game with the world. We're not called to out-seduce the world. We're called to shame that whole system by the way that we live. Right, I don't mean shame like nee. But to show the to show the utter futility of it. Right? To, to let people see this is this is real life. Because when we see God and when we see the cross, when people are confronted with the cross, they are put to shame, aren't they? Jesus put the rulers the powers and the authorities, to shame. He triumphed over them in the cross. And this is, how, this is how we triumph over the world as well. We show that nothing in the way that they live, nothing in that game, means anything to us. We are free to love. We're free to lay our lives down. We are free to go into the grave. And we are a resurrection people. And thank God for 1 Corinthians 15 that, that digs into that as well. It's cross, 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 and then here's where our hope really lies. And he gets to the end, and he goes, in chapter 15, he says, let me tell you why the resurrection matters. By that time, if you've been reading it correctly, you should know, man, this is quite a life God calls us to. This is a lot of sacrifice. I wonder if this is really worth it. And Paul says it is, but only if there's a resurrection. Only if you really do believe. Only if Jesus really was raised from the dead. Otherwise, we are of all people most to be pitied. So the manner of life that he is calling for is pitiable in the eyes of the world. But to those who put their hope in the resurrection of Jesus and in the resurrection of our bodies, of our own bodies, it's a glorious way of life. Amen? Amen. So we come and celebrate that. We remember, as he says in chapter 11, we proclaim our Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes to, once and for all, turn everything the right way. And those who have embraced his way, the way of the cross, the way of love, shine like stars. Those who have clung to the empty ways of the world, He says, whoever destroys the temple of God, which is the whole earth and the heavens together, that way of the world destroys the temple of God. It says, whoever destroys the temple of God, I will destroy. Because their way of life causes the destruction of everything around them. And God is coming to raise the righteous and the the wicked and to send out those who live their life grasping for worldly wisdom, worldly power, worldly lust, and to save those who have said, I'm nothing. What I think I have in the world, it's nothing. All I have is the grace of God. Amen?